Good morning. Welcome to this edition of the Richard Urban Show. I'm your host, Richard Urban. Coming to you from Store Carpets Ferry, we present news and views from God's point of view. Today, we're happy to have Mike Chapman on. He's a Democratic candidate for sheriff here in Jefferson County. So please introduce yourself. Uh, good morning, Mr. Urban and, and all your viewers. Thanks for having me on the show today. I really appreciate it. I am Mike Chapman. I'm the Democratic candidate for sheriff. Um, I'm probably a little different than the other candidates in the field. I was a uh, reserve deputy for the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office for 10 years. I logged a lot of volunteer time in a police cruiser doing my, my best to make the citizens of Jefferson County safe. Um, I served under three different sheriffs. I've seen three different management styles of the organization. But my primary uh, bread and butter, so to speak, throughout my life, I've been uh, involved in information technology, business, and finance. I'm an entrepreneur. I've owned a few small businesses um, over the years. Still do actually. Uh, I also own a farm out on the south end of Jefferson County. Um, I, I think that uh, basically I'll bring a unique perspective to the office. One, I do have the law enforcement experience. I do know what goes on inside the sheriff's office. I do have some experience with all that. But the fact that I've, I've spent my entire career you know, in the private sector where in order to survive, you have to make things more efficient, more cost effective, and more customer service friendly. And those are traits that you do not see in government, generally speaking, not not always. I don't want to be too dramatic with it, but but a lot of times in law enforcement, we're, we're missing some of those things. So I think that um, once I get in office and I and I take a good hard look at everything, do a complete process analysis, complete needs assessment, um, we'll find some opportunities to save the taxpayers' money, to be more responsible to the voters, um, to provide a higher level of customer service to people that have to interact with the sheriff's office, and and hopefully. Uh, just provide a, a total better service to the community while providing a better experience to the employees that work under me. Okay. Can you clarify for myself or and the viewers, like what do the reserve officers do? Do you ever make, have you ever made an arrest, for instance, or is it more like, um, I saw some things on, I think, the reserve website. Yeah. Sometimes you might direct traffic, or is it much more involved it's, than that? Yeah. It's, it, it, it sort of depends on the sheriff um, as to how much leeway he gives them. It also depends on the deputy that you might be working with at the time. Um, it's, um, the reserves have now, they have an academy with about 200 hours of training. They are trained in um, tasers, pepper spray, uh, takedown tactics, handcuffing. Um, they do, they assist deputies with arrest. Uh, at least in my day they did. I assume they still do. Um, I, you know, we, I've, I've rolled around on the floor with the subject, uh, trying to apprehend him along with the deputies. Um, you're, you're very much involved. Um, the, uh, we transport prisoners, we take them to arraignment, take them to prison. Um, we help process the paperwork on DUIs. We, we do direct traffic when there's a catastrophic event, something that might shut down the highways. Um, we're extra manpower, extra eyes and ears in the community. A lot of the things we do like, uh, uh, for example, I think a DUI arrest might take several hours to process. Um, you know, and then that would also include a trip to the regional jail. So we'll, we'll take some of those responsibilities off the deputy to get them back out on the street faster. So we're sort of a force multiplier for the sheriff's department. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, and that's a, I, a volunteer position. So you're giving yes. your time. Yes. And okay. I was, I was early, involved in that early on. I, I was one of the... Uh, people that help form the organization and make it what it is today. Okay. Yeah, I noticed about the training academy, they said it's one of the, maybe the only one in the state or something. For yeah, the, a lot of the regional, 
a lot of the counties, um, local counties will send their officers here for training because we do have such a great program. This, ours is the model program for the state of West Virginia. Okay. All right. Well, what do you think right now is the greatest issue for law enforcement in Jefferson County? Boy, um, that's, that's a two-part question for me. Um, okay. The biggest issue as we see it immediately is the opioid crisis. Um, it's, the opioid crisis drives so many other things, it, to an extent, human trafficking, um, to an extent, um, uh, healthcare, because uh, we're seeing upticks in hepatitis, uh, HIV, because of things that are going on in around the opioid crisis. It's, you know, it's destroying families, it's, it's creating despair, it, it's definitely a problem. But what I see is even um, a potentially bigger problem looming on the horizon um, if you're following the news, you know, the, the national rhetoric against police officers defunding the police, it's, it's driving down morale. Um, it's police officers that have been in, you know, we're seeing in New York, there's a mass exodus of police officers from New York right. City. They're retiring, they're quitting. Um, has it happened here yet? No. Are the, are the guys and girls in law enforcement um, feeling it? Yes. Uh, they, a lot of them want out. And even before this, recruitment nationally for law enforcement officers is down by 60%. Used to advertise, you get 100 applications. Now you're getting, you know, in locally, you get 10. Um, so it's, it's a problem. It's a real problem. And okay. so what scares me is at some point, you're going to lose your talented police officers because they're educated, they're smart, they can get another job. Um, you're going to lose them. And there's nobody to backfill them because nobody wants to go in law enforcement. The, the younger generation didn't like it, that idea anyway. They're not jumping in to fill those seats. A and everybody else is, why would they subject themselves to um, what they're hearing? Why, okay, why well, if I might ask a question. Okay, so I saw like your post about New York City Police Department and the uh, patrol officer just quit. And I know hundreds of other officers have quit. Um, the patrol officer chief or director, whatever the title is. But mm -hmm. the conundrum I see is like the Democratic Party and the Democratic mayor like de Blasio, he's causing a lot of these issues and the whole kind of um, nexus or between the Democratic Party and the defund the police movement. Now, I know yourself, you clearly indicated you're not for that, but no. your party seems to be leaning that way. Uh, can you address that or would you like to? Um, yeah, I, I can't speak for the Democratic Party. Listen, there's, there's a lot of labels that I use to define myself. I'm, I'm an American. I believe in the Constitution 100%. I'm a West Virginian. You know, I'm a husband. I'm a brother. I'm a son. I'm an entrepreneur. Um, somewhere down on that list, way down, you know, is the label Democrat. I, I, you know, I am a part of the party, but I don't understand the national objective. I, I really don't know what they're trying to achieve by this rhetoric on us because I, I don't know that many people that really want to defund the police. I have met a few locally. I have, um, but it seems to be a very much a minority because you know what's going to happen when you call nine one one if there are no police officers to take the call. Right. I, I don't want to live in that world. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Just want, uh, you know want to ask that. Well, on the question of the of the big issue of the opioids. And you're mentioning like on your website or Facebook about also, you know, a multi-pronged approach or reducing demand. I know specifically you mentioned that. 
what yeah. could be done to reduce demand? How do you see that? Or do you want to talk about that a little more in general? Sure, sure. Well, so first, first thing about opioids is it knows no socioeconomic boundaries. No, you know, it, it can happen in any family. And it just, it just can. Um, doesn't matter how much money you have, what ratio. You are. Um, the, uh, what I see as part of the problem is, you know, the, the supply demand equation, you know, as long as there's a demand for the product, there's going to be a supplier. We catch the supplier, we, we take down, we disrupt the network for a little while, somebody else comes back in to fill it because there's a demand for it. So we have to find a way, and I know that once you're on opioids, it's, it's almost impossible to get off. It's a lifelong addiction. I, I know all that, but the point is, if we do nothing, we're not going to make any progress at all. So we have to do something. If we can only save 10%, then that's that's still worth it. But but what we do now, we catch people with uh, with drugs, or we catch people they've committed a small property crime to get drugs, and we put them in jail for a while, and we don't really cure them, we don't fix them, we don't make anything better. Um, we pay $50 a day for them to sit in jail, and then we release them back into the world, still addicted, um, still whatever the underlying problem that may have led to their addiction is still there, if it's mental health, uh, whatever it may be. Um, so what I would propose is that we uh, we try to fix them as, as best we can. We try to help them. Um, and we have a day report center in town. And we, it obviously has limited capacity. Um, the treatment's funded largely through insurance companies. Um, so it, it alleviates a jail bill. Um, the insurance picks up the tab for the treatment. It's expensive to send them through that. But the idea is first we treat the chemical addiction. Then we try to treat the underlying condition that may have caused the chemical addiction. Then we try to reintegrate them back into society, you know, give them some job training. There's some, there's some employers locally that are, they're hiring people out of that program and, and try to make them productive citizens again, give them a reason to be proud. Um, the current system of just putting addicts in prison because they were holding drugs and they got caught and they go to jail. Now they have a drug addiction and a criminal record. That's, that's not really helping them. Um, so, Mm -hmm. We have to do something different. Yeah. So, do you think there's some? Uh, can anything be done like on the side of like businesses? So, yeah, I, you may or may not know. I work in the health freedom issue, like vaccination choice, meaning, you know, being able to choose to receive or not receive vaccines. Oh, that's an issue I'm concerned about. But anyway, uh, I've seen some nexus between this with the pharmaceutical companies because they're looking more of a profit motive. So it seems like the health of individuals, whether it be vaccines or even pushing the opioids over say a decade plus ago. So there's so many more prescribed. Is there anything that could or should be done or awareness increased like on that side, if I'm making sense? I'm gonna, I'm gonna differ a little bit from sort of everyone's opinion that it's the pharmaceutical company's fault. I'm not saying they're not culpable. I don't know about the fall, but it seems to be well, a, a factor. But go ahead. I think, I think that the blame for some of the addiction relies on the American people and their condition and also the health uh, insurance companies. Um, I, the, the, a, lot of, a lot of opioid addiction comes legitimately. It's people that have chronic illness, people that have been in an accident that are in chronic pain. Um, they take these and, and prescribe by a doctor and then they can't wean themselves off of it. So the first thing I'm gonna say, and, and it might not be a popular thing to say, is, is Americans tend to think that they have a right to be completely pain-free. Um, 
for your own health and, and safety and well-being, sometimes it's better not to take the drugs and put up with the pain. I've broken bones. I have a plate and five screws in my legs. It, it hurt. Um, I took, uh, I was prescribed 100 Percocet. I took four and then I quit. I didn't like the way it made me feel. I, feel, I felt those, I just you know, four mild Percocets after that surgery. And I felt that drug pulling down my drive, slowing me down, slowing, you know, I, I did not like it at all. So I suffered through the pain, basically became, it went from being painful to inconvenient in about four days without any medication. But um, the second thing is why, why I make the, the insurance companies culpable for this is that bottle of Percocet cost me like $5. That was my copay. Um, now, later on, in, in that process, when I had to go through rehabilitation, um, the insurance company didn't want to pay for that. Uh, so people who are managing chronic pain, it's cheaper to medicate them you know, at a $5, I don't know what the insurance portion of that expense was, but it wasn't much. It's cheaper to medicate them than it is to send them to physical therapy and get them treated the right way. And, and I'm sure that uh, someone has a counter argument for that, but uh, that's kind of my feeling just based on personal experience. Okay, I've heard a similar similar thing. Okay. In fact, um, one of the other candidates, sheriff candidates, Mr. Cox, said something similar. You know, so um, yeah, okay. Well, that's important. You mentioned also on uh, about training. You want to do some more things with deputy training, or well, maybe just explain yeah. what your concept about that is. Okay, so. Um, <laughs> It, basically, some of the national rhetoric for Steve fund the police, which that's the wrong thing to do. If you want the, if you want a different behavior from the police department, let's let's train them. Let's train them more. It's you know, which does require funding. Um, so if, I don't know if you had an opportunity to download my blueprint and look at it, but I, I posted that in. August. I saw the chart. It's like a circular yeah. chart. Kind yeah, of but thing. it explains all that. Yeah, it's um. So two two of the cornerstone pieces of training that I want to provide um, is crisis intervention training. Um, the idea is, look, there's people in crisis, mental health crisis, addiction crisis, you know, they're, they're walking around, they're, they're not coherent, they don't understand, they don't respond to verbal commands. So quite often police officers are sent out to um, basically secure them because they're just out of their heads and, and it creates public safety nuisance. So, you know, if you got someone that's not responding to commands, you know, the, the fast way to do that is either tackle them, tase them, pepper spray them, something to subdue them, handcuff them, and then and take them in. But a lot of times, if you just, if you know how to talk to someone in crisis, and it's, it's an art, but if you've, learned, if you've had that training, with, if you just invest five or ten minutes, you can bring them in peacefully and safely without having to use any type of force. Um, it's, uh, you know, people that are not... Uh, that are in crisis, that are having a mental breakdown. They, they don't hear things the way that the rest of us do. They only maybe can process three or four words at a time. So instead of, you know, yelling at them or trying to talk to them, you have to use slow uh, speech and slow sentences, very short sentences. Sir, what's wrong? And then give them time to process. You know, just it's, a, it's an art. And when they need to be trained. The other thing that um, that I think is important, and it, can I ask you a question before I? I, I oh sure, go uh, ahead. And you don't have to answer this, but have you ever been pulled over by a police officer? Have ever been pulled over? By I have. Police. I'll just go ahead and admit first. I have. Okay. Yeah. I um, I'm not sure. Like for drive while driving, you mean? 
Yeah, you think I had. I can't recall. For a taillight out. Recently. But I I have that. I'm sure I must have at some point. Everybody has. It's a taillight. You forgot to get an inspection. It it doesn't have to be that you were doing some malicious criminal behavior. But but what do you remember most about that experience? You probably don't remember the officer's name. Probably don't remember what agency you worked for. Well, you would be nervous about it. Yeah. But you're touching on where I'm going with this. What you remember most about an interaction with the police officer is how you felt. You don't, I ask people all the time, oh, I got pulled over today. Well, who, who pulled you? I don't know. Did they, was it the sheriff's officer or the state police? I don't know. Were they wearing a star or a shield? I don't know. But the guy was nice. They told me that, or the guy wasn't nice. They, they remember that. That's what the public remembers about their interaction with police officers, how, they, how that interaction made them feel. And so there's a, a training that's, it's not law enforcement specific, but it is recommended for law enforcement. It's, it's basically for every government worker. It's called um, procedural justice training. And it's simply a way to talk to people that um, promotes fairness, gives them a voice, makes you seem impartial, and has a, a level of transparency to it. And, and, and good, good police officers do that instinctively. Bad police officers, not so much. So by providing this training to police officers on a better way to interact with the public, you know, it'll reinforce the good officers on what they're doing and help them when they train new officers. And, and the police officers that don't do this naturally, um, you know, it, it will help bring them to a place where they can more peacefully talk to the public, create a better interaction for everybody, and, and stop some of this public police officer animosity towards one another. Okay, okay. Well, on another topic, so we've had the uh, governor's Thank you for that answer, too, or description. The mandates for COVID-19, and then we know that um, some businesses locally in Jefferson County, at least a couple, and others in, I know, Martinsburg, there's a barber shop where the, the gentleman said he wasn't shutting down. So the short question is, like, presumably these may have could or have escalated where the sheriff's office might be sent over, or maybe in Martinsburg, actually, the police. But any case, as an example, so to say, hey, look, you have to shut down. So would you enforce those kind of COVID-19 regulations, or even they could involve wearing a face mask or something like that? I mean, I was at the, uh, I mentioned some other interviews, like the Moulton Park on Memorial Day. It was closed. I want, I was. Uh, going to have a picnic with a friend. It was closed. It said, you know, uh, it's not open. In fact, they removed the picnic tables. So presumably, someone could have, you know, no one was there, by the way, no off stream, but could have said, hey, don't, don't congregate here, you know, or even arrest you or something. How would you handle those kind of mandates? Are those constitutional? What would you do? Well, well, let's, let's take the, uh, the face mask. Um, I don't see the sheriff's office being able to enforce masks. Um, we have a 32, 33 deputies in and all on duty at one time. There's at any given time, there's four to five out on the road. We have 56 ish thousand citizens. We are a tourist economy that has 3 million visitors per year. Um, we don't have enough deputies to do the law enforcement jobs that we have now, let alone try to tackle 3 million plus 56,000 people who may or may not be in compliance with mask law. I think this is, 
at best, it's, it's the responsibility of the health department to enforce. Um, it's also the responsibility of private businesses to, to handle on their own. You know, they already, I, I'm a little, in some ways, shocked at people that, uh, that fight the mask thing so much. Um, my entire life, I've, I've been, you know, involved in things like I, I'm an IT guy that worked in a factory. When I went out on a factory floor, I had to have steel toe boots, hearing protection, eye protection in certain areas, a hard hat. You know, safety equipment's part of many, many, many jobs. If you play sports, you're required to wear safety equipment. The mask thing to me is, is I just wear one if they want me to, and that's it. So, but um, I understand people that don't want to do that. I understand some people can't do that. Um, but uh, it's up to the businesses to enforce that. And if someone demands to come in without a mask, and their policy is that you must have a mask, it's within their right to deny service to the customer that doesn't want to comply. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that be, if that becomes situation becomes escalated, then you know we'll we'll step in and and remove them because they would at that point would be trespassing. Um, but just to walk around and tell people or cite people for not wearing a mask, um, that we're not going to do that. As okay. for the gathering, the gathering, if the park was officially closed and the owners of the park um, is that is that publicly owned? No, that's county. That's Malton county. Park. Yeah, they. <laughs> They, they may have closed the park, but no one was um, really interested in enforcing that. Uh, the governor himself said people should be outside and doing things. And, and so if you were outside um, using public grounds for, for family activity, I, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Okay. So the only other issue might be, or another issue would be, well, actually it happened. Like the sheriff sent over some deputies to the golf course and the uh, uh, shooting range. What do you think about that? I'm sure you've heard about that. I have. I've heard about that. That, uh, yeah. I, I don't. I don't know what motivated him to do that. I don't know where that came from. I would absolutely not have done that. Um, it, it, and if if it was made, if the government, if the governor actually mandated that and had sent out uh, an order um, to close down things, and he closed down into every golf course in the entire state, that's one thing. But um, just the fact that we have two in Jefferson County under that sheriff's jurisdiction, and only one of them got closed, <laughs> that's really, really bizarre to me. I don't understand how that happened at all, and I would not have done that under any circumstances. Okay. All right. Fair enough. On another issue, like I'm over here in Shannondale. So for decades and more recently, some of us, like I'm working with Steve Harris, are working on issue of, you know, the emergency safety having another exit presumably to the south or not definitely for Shannondale which requires some funding obviously that it will take some work but the short question is like as sheriff you know you would oversee emergencies or those kind of things would you support like having another southern exit for Shannondale absolutely um yeah, there could be one. There used to be a gravel road that actually took you out of there on the southern entrance. There is but like, I think, and still, I'm going to plan the hike in next month to, you know, to see exactly. But yeah, I mean, there is like an ATV trail. Yeah, but, but the point is the, the route's already been determined if somebody wanted to build a road there. But I, I live out on the south end of the county where um, the properties out here are subject to the Route 340 expansion. And I um, am likely, I don't know what the final plan is, to lose part of my front yard to uh, the road expansion. Now, I can tell you that the state first approached me in 1992. Wow. About, yeah, 
and about they, the right away. That was a while back, what, 25? They've, they've, since then, they've done like, I don't know, eight or 10 or 15 plans, different alternate routes. Um, they've, uh, it's, it's insane. They, they stirred it back up again in the late 90s and again in like 2000. But now it's been contracted, right? Is that true? You know, they say it has. I, I, I did see that in the paper, but I'm not going to believe it till I see a bulldozer out front. But the point okay. is, to get the state to build a road, it, it takes a tremendous, tremendous effort. And, you know, as sheriff, I can, I can recommend that for public safety reasons that they do that, but then they're going to have to go through the eminent domain process, buy the land, do the route. You know, it, it's, um, it, it might take them 20 years. Uh, it certainly has out here. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it also, uh, when they build that, the uh, as we've seen from from this end of the county, the neighbors will uh, will be very upset. You know, they ever they'll nobody wants to have their property taken. So yeah. it will be a fight. It'll it'll definitely put the mountain into some turmoil when the time comes to action. Although most of the land is is like um, I guess I don't know if it's called conservation land. It may belong to the friends retreat or other owners, but it seems to be in kind of like a conservation status. You know what I mean? It's not like, like largely developed. A lot of that might make it harder for the state to acquire. So I don't. I, don't I have to. I need to study more about this exact status of yeah. what it is. But but definitely, definitely would support that as a safety measure, and, and you know, do my part to try to push that through. Okay, all right. Are there, a, a, you know, as we think about or maybe come toward a conclusion, like why would the you know voters especially choose you versus your three or supposedly four opponents. I know Mr. Lance is very active uh, as far as I can see. What is, uh, what will be your distinguishing points? Um, well, uh, I'm the best candidate for the job. Uh, that's, that's a good reason to pick me, but now I, I just, I bring a different perspective. You know, the, the guys with law enforcement experience, they, um, it, well, to be, to be a law enforcement officer, minimum requirements are, high school diploma and then 14 weeks at the academy and some on the job training, you know, and, and I'm not speaking about specifically the other candidates, but just generally speaking. So you can come up through the ranks and, and run a police department based on that without a, without a broad scope of other world experience. And you're sort of, your, your knowledge is sort of pigeonholed into that area. Um, I, I think what I bring to the table above me on the other guys is that broader range of experience. Um, you know, other ideas, uh, you know, ways to do things um, faster and more efficient. Um, some, some, I've got some ideas that I don't, I don't really want to go into the detail of them yet because um, they're so, I'll call them state of the art, that the state code doesn't even address whether it's legal to do it or not. So I'm going to have to get a legal opinion on how to, how to do some of these things to help, um, help improve the processes in the sheriff's office. But, uh, the, um, I, I think that uh, also having been in private sector, you know, managing people, um, sheriff's office is kind of a, it's definitely a uh, chain of command kind of organization. And it needs to remain so, but, but what happens is you know, police officers who have done this forever, they become a little jaded. You know, they, they definitely, um, they see the worst in society and they see the best people quite often when they're having the worst day of their lives. So they're a little jaded there. They don't, they don't always think in terms of, you know, more of um, more management, more modern management and leadership styles. Um, and I think, 
I think the sheriff's office needs an injection of that. You know, we need to we need to empower the, the deputies and supervisors of the deputies. We need to um, provide them more competitive things to help make their jobs better. Like like training, for example. Um, we have one guy that's trained in um, accident reconstruction. You know, we've got two two detectives. Uh, why not train more people? If 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 I find out that Officer X wants to be um, trained in action, accident reconstruction, because that's something they're really passionate about, really want to do. I should be able to provide that training to them to further their career, further their, their knowledge. Um, and also just give them a better experience while they work there. Uh, plus, when you only have one guy that involved in that discipline, if, if he moves on, then we have no one. So we need some bench strength. Um, I think that also some of the things I bring to the table, you know, with that broader experience is like recruiting. Um, we recruit deputies now by put an ad in the paper and an ad on Facebook. Um, and we're not, we're not drawing uh, a broad base. You know, we, we have no minority representation whatsoever. So when I recruit deputies, I'm going to use, you know, borrow from my, my business experience. What do we do? We partnership with educational institutions. We're going to partnership with Shepherd College and catch their criminal justice majors. Um, Blue Ridge Technical Community College. Um, even Jefferson High School, yeah, their students there are taking forensics classes right now, all right, in Washington High School as well. Um, so, so if we actually partnership with these organizations and try to recruit these kids that have a propensity for law enforcement type backgrounds, and then plan our testing around graduation time, so we catch them first when they're right out of school, and reach out to them to invite them to the testing um, personally. Um, maybe even have job fairs if necessary, do something more than just an ad in the paper. And I think we can get a better pool of people to pick from. Uh, we can also diversify our workforce a little bit. Okay. You're, I know um, you mentioned, and I don't personally know, so, and maybe for our viewers, but you're, um, you mentioned you're in IT, like, do you work for a larger company, have your own business? Do you want to just tell us a little more about that? Both actually. Um, I, I've, uh, well, see, okay, so my primary job in IT, I work for a local company that's no longer here, uh, Royal Vendors. Um, the, the largest budget I ever managed just for IT was $3 million. Um, now, Royal Vendors is, the world headquarters was here in Carnesville, but we had plants. I heard about from, that. Uh, yeah, we had plants in Mississippi once upon a time, um, Tennessee, Arizona, and of course, there's a, a plant in Missouri. Um, we closed with over the, you know, it was, a, it was an incredible place to work. We, I, I, I rode the upswing from $70 million to a $300 million company. Um, and then I rode it back down again as they started, uh, divesting of other locations. Um, so we, uh, to add to that, we also had sales offices in Canada, Mexico, Australia, and Europe. Um, so it was a global IT network that I, that I managed. And then on the side, I had a, uh, a contracting business. Um, I worked, uh, I did IT work for, uh, for daycare, for healthcare. I did work for other manufacturing companies. They worked for construction companies. They worked for property management companies. I always just had kind of a sideline there. Um, I've, um, I've owned a few other businesses along the way, including a commercial property maintenance company and property management company, um, which I still own. Okay, excellent. All right, well, we'll wind this down. Uh, just any concluding thoughts you'd like to share? Well, um, basically, I, I am definitely the right candidate for the job. I've got 
um, I've got the experience in finance to manage budget. I think that we're going to have, I think this year we're fine, you know, with the, the CARES Act propped up the county budget, but at some point uh, we're going to be in trouble because video lottery revenues are down, hotel motel taxes are down, and table games revenues down. Um, property taxes are seem to be on the increase, or they soon will be because houses are selling like crazy. And, and uh, I'm, I'm hearing from my realtor friends that they're getting you know, 25% over asking, over asking price. Mm. Definitely going to drive up our property tax uh, revenue. Uh, so where we're going to land, I don't know. But um, if, if we do find a budget shortfall, uh, and we'll, we'll figure it out. You know, I've got the experience to do budget modeling to come up with ways that, that, that very quickly tell what, what we can do to make the sheriff's department work. If we have to lean it up, we can still provide the same level of service to Jefferson County on a smaller budget for a short period of time. Um, I, I think that I can, um, in fact, I've got some ideas for retention. I, I know I've talked to some deputies, there, there is a morale problem. I think I can improve it. Um, we already got those plans in place. Uh, basically, we can just provide a Jefferson, the citizens of Jefferson County with a higher level of service than, than they currently have, regardless of the budget condition. Okay. Well, right. thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming on today. And so, yeah, actually we had the um, interviews with all the different candidates. So I urge the viewers to check those out. We don't have Mr. Lance. I'm not sure what he's doing, but other, all the other candidates are there. And um, yeah, thank you very much for your time and joining us today. And um, we appreciate that. So I am your host, Richard. I'm coming to Stark Harper's Ferry and do be blessed.